know the half of it. <laughs> I, that was a joke. None of you got it except two people. Um, as we read God's word this morning, remember this is a summation of all that we have learned of Jesus Christ from John's testimony. Hear now the word of God. Excuse me. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the book that would be written. This is the word of God. Amen. You may be seated. I know that because we are American citizens, we have little interest in foreign affairs, but did any of you see the coronation of King Charles III? Did you see it? I was, uh, I was really amazed. I think my wife is secretly working for the <laughs> British Service Intelligence Office because everything Britain comes in our house loud and clear. And I remember when Fergie was getting married, uh, this is before Cindy and I married, and she said, you better think fast because redheads are getting off, or, or the lists are checking off quickly. You better hurry up. I think she was, uh, in the words of Beyonce, she was thinking I better put a ring on it or something <laughs> like that. It was a subtle hint that I needed to propose because Fergie was getting married. Well, this morning as we close John's Gospel, the most amazing thing to think about is John has written this gospel for you to make a decision. And you, you don't read it that way. We, we go and we open the Bible and we look at it in the sense that we think, okay, I'm going to learn something about God, and then we learn something and walk away. And so there's a tendency in the church, and in fact it's true in the Christian church in America today, that we fill our minds with the knowledge about God, but we never let it transfer into our hearts and begin to permeate our lives. We're seeing this in our day. It's everywhere. And there is a conflict that you are dealing with every day as you live in this culture. Do I believe God or do I not believe God? Do I trust in Christ or is there another way to be forgiven? before God the Father. And so as you read this gospel, the most amazing thing is that John ends it by reaffirming something that you and I need to consider because we have to make a decision. And the decision is this. Do we really believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? You say, well, Robert, I've known that all my life. Well, you may have known it, but is it changing your life? Is it changing your families? Is it changing our culture? I was talking with someone this past week who's not a member of this church, who has grown up in the church, and they know all about the doctrines of the Christian faith, but when it comes to one particular area of their life, they are living in, they're not living in accord with God's will. And in that living, they believe that they're okay with God, even though they're not following his will. Now, is that possible? Is that what it means to believe in Jesus? Well, this morning I want to show you three things that, pa that John is bringing to us to reaffirm what he has written in this gospel that we might take it seriously. The first is it ta he talks about the author who wrote this gospel. 
The second, he talks about the testimony that the gospel gives. And the third is that he talks about the sufficient evidence to make a decision. Now, let me just take the first one real quick, the author. And before I get into that, I did watch the coronation of the, of the king of England. And I was surprised because that coronation historically spoke to the problem the church faces today. You see, early in the history of Europe, there was a title that was given to the king of England. It was called Defender of the Faith. The article the is important. The Defender of the Faith. Fidei Defensior was the Latin that was used by the church in that day to declare that the sovereign king of England was the one who was appointed to defend the faith. That title was first conferred by Pope Leo X on Henry VIII in October 11th of 1521. It was a reward to him. Now get this. The Pope rewarded the king for a pamphlet that he printed or had print that was called the Declaration of the Seven Sacraments against Martin Luther. Now, for those of you who may not know church history, the Reformation and this church and all of the Protestant movement and Presbyterianism began because of the search for truth from the Scriptures. And Martin Luther, who was a Catholic priest, reading the Scriptures in Latin, and as Logan referred to this morning, no one had the Bible in their own language until the reformers like Huss and others began to say, we need to put the Bible in people's hands. And the church hierarchy said, oh, no, no, they'll misrepresent God's will if we let them translate the Bible. Well, Martin Luther, as he began to wrestle with the gospel and the salvation that's in Christ, began to realize the church at that time was teaching heresies. And he nailed to the front of the Wittenberg door, the church door, what was called the 95 or th was it 95 theses that were basically a layout of the places where the church was not being faithful in teaching God's word. And it caused a huge revolution. Well, this king, King Henry VIII, being of sound mind and noble body, decided that he was going to do the Pope a favor and say, through an edict as king of England that he was a defender of the faith by publishing this pamphlet on why Luther was wrong. And then he decided he wanted to get divorced. And the Pope wished he'd never given him the, the title, the defender of the faith. Well, you can well imagine that that title was taken away when Henry broke his vow with the papacy, Pope Paul III deprived him of that designation, the defender of the faith. He said, well, then why did King Charles III, who was just crowned king, why, is we, why was he called defender of the faith? Because Parliament, the Parliament of England in 1544, reassigned that designation to the king of England. And the most amazing thing happened this past month. England crowned a king who didn't like the title. You see, in 1994, Charles 
King Charles III now, triggered a controversy when he said he would be the defender of faith, not the faith. He would be the, the defender of faith rather than the defender of the faith, which is faith in Jesus Christ. It was a desire that he had to reflect Britain's religious diversity. And so because of that, there was a suggestion that maybe the coronation oath that he was to take would be changed. Well, like everything else in church, it's hard to change anything, isn't it? Well, they didn't let him, but he still has that feeling. As his coronation approached in 2015, he, he got on public radio and declared in an interview with the BBC uh, he clarified what he was saying in his views that they had mis misinterpreted, he, he said. He said, as I tried to describe, I, uh, as I tried to describe, I mind about the inclusion of other people's faith, their freedom to worship in this country. It's, and it's always seemed to me that while at the same time being defender of the faith, you can also be protector of faiths. Do you hear it? Well, let me ask you, if you're a defender of faith, does that mean faith in anything? Because faith is not something we just do. Faith is an expression of what we trust in, who we trust in. And so when the Bible says we live by faith, we're not talking about that we just decide, okay, I'm going to walk and see if I fall and step off a cliff. We have put our trust in a person named Jesus Christ and the work he did for us on the cross. And that work in and of itself is vitally important to understanding how we can be forgiven of our sins and the promises we have of the resurrection and eternal life after we are no longer in this world. You see, that's the tension that's happening in our day. The tension we're seeing is there is this great movement to move people away from what is the faith, what is the truth, to whatever I believe, whatever suits my needs. If I were to describe the idol of our day, the thing people worship in our culture, the worship idol we bow to is the worship idol called convenience. What is convenient for me? You don't like your marriage? Get divorced. You don't like the restaurant you go to? Go down the street. You don't like the way you're treated in one church? Or you have a conflict with someone in your church? Go to another one. You see, we don't deal with the issues of the teaching of Jesus Christ anymore. Did you know that Jesus says when you have an enemy, you're to pray for him? Have y'all been doing that lately? You see, as John lays out his gospel, he lays out a way of living that's not dependent on what is convenient for me. He lays out a gospel that says, I am called to die to myself and follow Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means I'm to take his word and begin to, as we saw in the confession this morning, as I hear it preached, I am to meditate on it, I am to to mull it over in my mind. I'm to talk about it with other people. I am to dig into it because it is painfully going to change me if I am serious about following Christ. Let me give you another one. 
Jesus said, go and make disciples. And I look at that and I think, who is my disciple? Well, I'm the pastor of a church. I, I've got all these disciples. I'm, I'm clear, right? What about you? Well, the truth of the matter is, discipling is not a matter of position of a pastor. We believe, as Presbyterians, in the priesthood of all believers, which means you, you, you are a priest for God. You are the one that God is calling to make Christ known in your community, to tell others about what he did on the cross for them. And then if they receive him and believe in him, Jesus is expecting you to disciple them, to lead them in Bible study, to teach them how to pray. That's why we talk about children being raised in our our church, we baptize our children. Why? Because it's, it's a way of getting them into heaven. Heavens, no. We baptize our children because we recognize that they are born into our families and because we believe we are charged by Christ to teach our children the scriptures. We're to read the scriptures to them. We're, we're to open the Bible for them. We are to explain what we hear in the sermon to them. We are to guide our children in the way of righteousness. And how easy is that? Yeah, it's not, is it? So when you and I begin to look at this particular closing of the gospel, it becomes incredible that John wants you to understand you must make a decision. You have to do that. And no decision is a decision. How so? Well, he goes first and says, if you notice in the first verse we read in, uh, in verse 24, he says very clearly that, that he, and, and let me read it very carefully for you, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who writes them down. Well, why is that so important? Well, as the author, he wants us to understand that these were not some words passed on to someone else who passed on to someone else who passed on to someone else and then wrote it down. When I was studying in seminary, one of the questions that, that comes is, well, how did we get the Gospels? You know, there were Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. How did we get four Gospels? And where did they come from? And who's responsible for them? Well, John is telling us that this gospel we've been studying came from him. And he wants us to understand that he wrote it down. Many of you probably don't know that he was the last disciple to live. He was exiled to an island called Patmos in the Mediterranean. And it was there that he wrote the first, second, and third letter of John. And the gospel he wrote, because we think from church history, others pleaded with him to give testimony to the words of Jesus Christ. Now, for the last 150 years, educated men and women have tried to tear that apart. I have known people who have gone to seminary and they hear the various theories of how the Bible came into be. And there, there are too many for me to go through this morning unless you've got another hour. Do you all have another hour? There are various theories of how we got the Bible, and the various theories are all conjecture of men. That's all they are. 
One is, one theory is that Mark was the earliest gospel and that he gave his gospel, it's the shortest, and the others, Luke and Matthew, borrowed some from him. And then, I love this, there's this mysterious source called Q. And, and from Q, we, they, they pulled in these other things and then suddenly it all got together and it was kind of like they shuffled it together, organized it, and then each one wrote their own gospel. And Matthew didn't really write his gospel, some other scribe did. And Luke wrote it, but then someone else added to it and, and it goes on and on and on. Now, now people make money doing this. I, I, I'll never forget reading about the Jesus Seminar. Have you ever heard of the Jesus Seminar? It was a group of, it's now defunct, thank God. But it was a group of formerly ordained pastors and priests who would open the scriptures and study them together and then they would look at a passage and take a vote as to whether they believe Jesus actually said this or whether someone wrote it thinking about Jesus saying that. One particular famous member of that group who was a, a Roman Catholic priest who, who lost his ordination but now teaches at a Catholic college. Or at least he used to, I should say. Was in an interview and they asked him, well, do you believe anything the Gospels teach us about Jesus? And he said, there's very few there, very few passages there that we can ascribe to anything that Jesus taught. And then the interviewer frowned and looked at him and said to them, why, why do you even bother to be a professor of religion? And in a moment of clarity, he said, it's because there's a lot of money in it. One of the things the disciples warned us about was in the last days, there would be many who would come who would lead us astray. And they would rise up from within the church. They wouldn't have to come through the doors of the church. They would already be in the church, but unbelieving. John is writing this gospel for you to understand. As you read, as you read these last words, everything he's recorded about what Jesus said is true. And whether you believe it or not is immaterial. It is true. We are now seeing in the generation we have before us, and I'm the last of the generation of those who believe truth is true, every generation we have seen come since 1964 has fallen into this worldview that truth is relative. Truth is convenience. Truth is what I feel or what I think is beautiful or what includes everyone. And so we're seeing that in our culture. This is why the church is struggling. This is why you're struggling so much to represent Christ in the world is because we come with a truth statement and say, this is true. And they'll say, well, yeah, that's true for you. But it's not for me. And, and the problem with that is there can be no consistent living because if truth is not true, then people are living a lie and they don't know it. And I, I don't know about you, but I think lies are amazing tools, aren't they? Because you always have to tell another lie to cover the lie you told. And then another lie. And then another lie. And then another lie. And before long, you're in a nest that you can't get out of. I believe that is one reason why we're seeing a rise in suicide today. 
I believe what we've seen with the beer light controversy, with the, the beer cans and all of that's happening, I believe all of this is a result of the fact that we are seeing in our culture a cultural battle for what is true. And so John wants you to understand as he's writing this gospel, as he's closing it, he says, I want you to understand that what I am giving you, what I am testifying to you, these things, they're not only true, I've written them down so that they're there and available for you. What a glorious thing God has given us. That whenever we have to worry or be concerned about what is the Lord's will, you don't have to trust the preacher. You go to the scriptures. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that wonderful? I want to ask you, does that change your life? Are you opening your Bible? Are you allowing it to wash your mind and meditate upon it and discuss it with other people? You see, that's, that's really the only way that we are going to grow in our righteous way of life is by taking God's Word and letting it live in the page through us and that others might see. That's why we freely receive, we freely give to others. Others will know that Christ lives. Why? Because you say so? No, because you open the gospel of John and you study Jesus' words and you apply it to your life and you live out that word. That's the way you know God. That's the way you experience God is when you trust him to obey what he's commanded. And only when you do that do you really begin to see that God is real and true. The th second thing that's interesting here is the testimony. He goes on to say that we testify. Well, what does he mean by that? We testify. We give testimony. Well, some people who've studied this passage are, are maybe conjecturing that, that the we there is that, that John is thinking of the elders in the church in Ephesus where he's living apparently at the time he wrote the gospel, maybe. And because he's, he's with other elders, he wants the people who read the gospel to recognize that not only is it coming from his pen and his thoughts and his reflections, it is God's word and the elders who are there in the church are affirming that. Well, that, that's a wonderful suggestion, but that really doesn't fit the context of the passage. Uh, others have tried to suggest that maybe it's the royal we. Have y'all ever heard of the royal we? Uh, men, it's like when, uh, when your wife tells you that, that things are going to happen in your, in your home and, and you're, she's on the phone and, and she says, well, we have decided, and you're going, when did we decide that? You know, that's the royal we, right? Right? Uh, the royal we is one of those moments where there is a common consensus or conjecture that, that, that this is just a truth that is there. Uh, R.C. Sproul probably puts it the best way in his commentary on, on John. He says, at the very end of the gospel, John takes an oath and he says of his testimony, we know this testimony is true. Apparently, John is using the editorial we here, declaring that in the sight of God, what he has written is true. Why would that be so important? Because in the days that John lived, if you were a false prophet, you were stoned. And more than that, you were damned by God. Do you hear that? 
And so when John is writing this and saying we, the testimony he's giving is that I understand that what I have written, I am going to be judged for. Do you know the scariest thing for me as a pastor of this church? Everything I've ever spoken from this pulpit, I will have to give answer to before God on the day of judgment. Every word. That's why the Bible says if you want to be a teacher of God's word, you better be really careful and very serious about expository preaching. Because let me tell you, if you're serious about that, you're going to be preaching on things that are not popular to people because of the idol of convenience. Convenience. Well, thirdly and finally this morning, for those of you who are looking at your watch, please notice the sufficient the sufficiency or the sufficient evidence he gives. How much evidence do you need? How much? He goes on to say, and it's probably hyperbole. I mean, I, someone gave me a little disc called an SD disc that goes into the side of the computer. And on that little disc, I can save every file of every pastor and every church in our presbytery. If I were to take that file and print it out, the stack of paper would be this much. Okay? It's all on this little drive. It just amazes me. Don't, doesn't it amaze you? Well, I think John is using hyperbole in the sense that in his day, when they wrote, they didn't have paper like we do. They used parchment or they used animal skin. And so it was a premium thing to be able to write a letter. You just didn't pick it up from the staple store down the street. You, you, it had to be processed. It had to be sold. And when you bought it, it, it was really quite expensive. If you have not had the chance to go to the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., you really need to. Because when you think about and see how the Bible has been preserved and the fact that the Bible we have is proven to be more accurate than anything scholars have known for over 200 years, we don't have the original Hebrew and Greek manuscripts that were written, but we have copies of copies of copies. There are so many copies and so voluminous of number that when you take all of those and compare them with one another, you can't find anything that is a mistake in the communication of God's word. There may be a T not crossed or an I not dotted, but the manuscripts testify that the Bible we have is incredibly preserved. Why do I say that? Well, how much evidence do you need to believe in Jesus? Thomas said, I won't believe it until I see him and touch his hands and his side. What did Jesus respond? Blessed are those who never see but believe. Sproul puts it this way. He says, I've given you the tip of the iceberg. This is his phraseology of what John is trying to tell us. 
I've given you the tip of the iceberg. But under the water is this huge volume of things that could have been written that aren't. Because time doesn't permit it. Maybe parchment doesn't. There isn't enough parchment to record it. But it would be everything that Jesus did in his earthly ministry. And the truth is, what I've given you is proof enough. You take it. You're smart people. You open it. You read what he wrote. You cross-reference it to other places. You pray over it. And you will see that it will lead you to the place where you will begin to have to acknowledge that Christ is Lord. And if you don't, it doesn't matter how much evidence you need. The problem you have is unbelief. That's the problem. Do you know that's the chief sin of the human heart? All the way back to the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? Hmm. Do y'all like Facebook? I'm glad you don't. But someone posted on Facebook probably a good synopsis of things that are happening in our culture today. There's a two kinds of portrayals of Jesus that are being promulgated and this may be overly simplistic but it is it is surprisingly recognizable there's a modern Jesus and there's a Jesus of John's gospel the modern Jesus preaches only love only love the Jesus of John's gospel preaches God's righteousness the modern Jesus never says anything negative. The Jesus of John's gospel warns of sin and judgment and hell. The modern Jesus talks about being loved and accepted by the world. The John, Jesus John portrays talks about if you follow him, you'll be hated and despised by the world. Jesus that's modern is he's there to serve you supply you give you what you need the Jesus of the gospel is concerned about exalting God and the will of our Father in heaven there it is which gospel do you believe? The glorious news that John gives is that we have this gospel so that we might trust in Christ because we do not have the ability to save ourselves. Some of you are struggling with sin and doubt and fear and I want you to know that's real and it's true and it's palpable. But this person Jesus is not dead. 
He is raised from the, from the grave. He has been exalted in the heaven. He is now both Lord and God. And he is worthy of your trust. Don't take my word for it. Read God, John's gospel. Talk to this living Lord. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and our Father, as we close our time together, we are so thankful for the gospels that you've given, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We thank you for their unity and their collective representation of not just the Lord who was walking upon the face of the earth, but the exalted King of glory. And so this morning, there may be someone in the sound of my voice who is really beginning to consider, maybe Jesus is who he says he is. Maybe there is something I should revisit in my thinking. My prayer for you is that you would not allow this to be tossed aside as you leave here. My prayer is that you would be restless over this until you find your rest in him. And for those others of us who, who have come to faith in Christ and we feel the winds of change, we feel the overwhelming sand of our culture shifting, help us to stand upon the rock named Jesus. May his words permeate our hearts, fill our minds, guide our actions. May they heal our marriages, help us to walk in a moral and upright way when we are beset by all kinds of desires that would lead us far from the living God. We humbly pray and ask all this and more in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord and the people of God said together, Amen.